I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 77 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus is condemned by Israel's religious leaders, one of his followers skulks in the shadows nearby at a distance. I designed a movie apprenticeship program for my kids. I felt like this was an important thing to do. Started years ago when my son, then an only child, his sister was yet to come into the world, and he was, I think, about a year old. I can't remember exactly. But my son and I went to lunch at an old pizza parlor in Portland, and we sat down to eat together, and I overheard a conversation between another dad and his son, who I think was maybe eight or nine. I'm really bad at gauging the age of children on sight. But anyway, this kid was older than my kid. So the son asked this other dad, why is this restaurant called Escape from New York? And the dad, you know, thought about it, and he replied, well, you know, it's, a name, it's named after an old movie about this kind of cool soldier slash prisoner dude who has to save the president in order to get out of jail. And the son considered this for a moment, and then he asked his dad, is it cool? And the dad looked out the window and sort of seemed to play the memory of the movie in his mind's eye for a moment. And then he looked back at his kid and he said, yeah, actually it is. So the son asked, can we watch it? And the dad said, sure. And I thought, what a cool conversation. I'm staring at them the whole time through this, I realized. I turned to my tiny son and I realized that I didn't know if I had ever thought about when and if I would show my kid Escape from New York. So I went home and I made a list of all the kinds of movies from the 70s and 80s and 90s that wouldn't just happen into our lives otherwise. Movies like Labyrinth or Flight of the Navigator, E.T., Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. A long list of them, dozens and dozens of movies. And then when Beck turned six and Isla was four, we started to have movie nights and go through that list. One movie at a time based on ages and they go up through the years. We still watch new movies. We watch movies all the time, actually. Before the world was shut down, one of my favorite things in the world was to take my kids to the movies. Earlier today, we, my son Beck and my daughter Isla, we were in the mini movie theater that I built in my house, and we were watching a movie together. This is also one of our Sunday afternoon traditions, not from the apprenticeship list, just whatever we feel like watching at the time. And a scene in the film that we were watching earlier today made me think of tonight's text. I won't tell you which movie, so as not to spoil the scene, but in it, a character laments the great regret of their life, that when their father was on his deathbed, they were too afraid, small child they were, to go in and tell their dad goodbye. And I thought of the real-life deathbed experience, the awfulness of it. I thought of the way that for disciples of Jesus, the deathbed experience is kind of a paradox. In one sense, it is a horror, same as for everyone else. There are no pleasantries one can puff up around it to make it more palatable. It is simply awful. But for those unfortunate enough to have lost a loved one who followed Jesus, you might also know the strange experience of witnessing the ultimate subversion of evil before your eyes. That though death is not God's design, not God's will, in it, 
The disciple of Jesus is revealed in glory as they die and enter the presence of God. So in a way, you watch as Satan's work is robbed on the spot and turned upside down. This afternoon, I was thinking about this fictional character who was too afraid to move close to the awful thing, too afraid of what it would cost them, and how for us, the awful thing is still awful, but it gets turned on its head. Let me show you what I mean. Let's read from Matthew 26, the text Allah just read to us, beginning with verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Now, Matthew, the author of this biography, we think had a Jewish audience in mind for his writing. Matthew was Jewish himself, and he writes bitterly of the Jewish leaders like someone who has been wounded. Matthew's gospel, despite having been authored by a Jewish man, has been accused of painting the Jewish religious leadership in a very unflattering light, as we're about to see. It has certainly been abused throughout the centuries to anti-Semitic ends. But that Matthew sounds wounded makes sense to me. Matthew believes the Jewish leadership has failed in their God-given appointment. And the way that they fail results in the suffering and death of his beloved master and friend. So he is hurt. And Matthew doesn't spare himself or the other disciples either. Look at verse 58. Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. That line is so haunting to me. To begin with, the translation of the last line, to see the outcome, is a little clinical. The Greek word that my NIV translate as outcome is telos. It means the end. As in, he entered and sat down with the guards to see the end. Matthew is documenting the beginning of the end of the disciples' hope in Jesus. And if you remember last week, Peter, moments before this scene, was waving a sword around, disobeying Jesus' teaching on nonviolence, and he gets rebuked for it. Peter was willing to risk when it meant following Jesus the way he wanted to follow Jesus. He was ready for violent revolt, but he wasn't ready for a nonviolent Jesus who willingly went with his arresters peacefully. And so Peter, along with all the other disciples, run away and hide. But Peter is the only one in the story who comes back. He's a man on the margin of the ordeal, someone who wants to be brave, we think, who can't bear to leave Jesus altogether, but he sits miserably in the shadows, watching, doing nothing. In this scene, Peter becomes every disciple who follows Jesus carefully at a distance, unwilling to enter the places of discipleship that ask much, and thus not really following Jesus at all. In his commentary on this passage, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, If we will not walk with Jesus, we will sit with his enemies. Following Jesus from a distance is probably meant as a figure of compromised discipleship. We either follow Jesus closely or we do not really follow him at all. Which is true, but it sounds pretty hardcore. I think all of us who follow Jesus can see ourselves in this shambling, fretful, but conflicted Peter. Another theologian pointed out, Peter follows out of love, but at a distance, out of fear. Let's keep reading. Verse 59, Jesus is brought before the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, 
I'll pause for a moment. For context, the Sanhedrin was an ancient tribunal of religious leaders established after the Jewish exile. And there are three sorts of classes to the Sanhedrin. First, there were the chief priests, whom we might compare to someone like a, a senior lead pastor. Secondly, you have the scribes, which are sort of like our Bible teachers. And finally, you have the elders, which is sort of like our church elders at Van City or, or our Van City community leaders, the kind of non-professional ministry leaders, if you will. So this group in verse 59 is looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. The story goes on, verse 60, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This is sort of true, actually. In chapter 24, Jesus told his disciples the temple would be destroyed, predicting, in this case, its literal destruction in AD 70. And all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that same scene. So Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed enough that it got documented those three times. But in John's gospel, Jesus actually tells angry skeptics, in want of a sign, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, referring metaphorically, we now know, to his own bodily death and resurrection. Point is, it makes a lot of sense that someone was able to produce witnesses that have heard Jesus going on about the temple being destroyed. Granted that we know they've misunderstood and thus misrepresented his teaching. But having someone accuse you of threatening to destroy the temple is a pretty serious charge. Claiming you can rebuild it in three days makes you sound like a lunatic. And the whole thing would come across as particularly troubling if you preside over the entire temple establishment, which, of course, the high priest did. Jesus is an affront to the system as it stands. And here he is affecting a demeanor of non-compliance. He won't speak up or defend himself. So, in verse 62, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus, who taught what is still today dismissed as naive and untenable non-resistance to evil, if you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evil person, here he is living out what he taught. Verse 63 goes on. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Thinking of the Messiah as the Son of God was actually pretty atypical amongst first century Jews. But there are a couple of places in the Hebrew Scriptures that talk about the promise of the Jewish Messiah, that a coming king would arrive to reign over Israel, and he would also be called God's Son. Think of Psalm 2, the one that we read earlier this evening, I will proclaim the Lord's de decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I've become your father. Or in 2 Samuel 7, we read, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. So the high priest doesn't suspect any kind of divine identity in Jesus, the way that we think of Jesus as the Son of God. He's asking Jesus pointedly, do you believe that you are the long-awaited Messiah promised by the Scriptures, the one mentioned in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel, the King of Israel? 
Throughout this process of false witnesses and half-truths that's going on throughout the middle of the night, I'm sure the whole ordeal was getting tiresome, long-winded, and Jesus has remained frustratingly non-compliant and silent. And so he speaks up and says, look, just tell us the truth. Do you think you're the guy? And Jesus' reply is incredible. Look at verse 64. You have said so, Jesus replied. I can't tell you how much I love this. So much of Jesus' subversive brilliance and razor wit is packed into these four words. And the whole thing begins with such an awesomely subtle literary flourish. My Bible translates the line just like I've read it. You have said so, Jesus replied. Past tense, replied, past tense. But Matthew actually uses a kind of Greek present tense, more like Jesus says to him. Scholars believe this is Matthew's way of telling the reader that this is what Jesus is saying then and now. He's still saying it. As you read these words, whenever and wherever you read them, Jesus says. We know that Jesus believes he's the Messiah. He's made no secret about it. It's come up throughout the whole gospel. Both the author, Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself have all explicitly affirmed that fact that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So what's up with the ambiguity all of a sudden? Well, as is often the case with Jesus, there are layers. First, notice that the high priest demands this information from Jesus by, quote, charging him under oath by the living God. Now, think back all the way back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he explicitly forbids his disciples from participating in the formality of oaths. Jesus' quasi-non-answer kind of answers without participating in the oath. But the more important dynamic is something I think that we can relate to. Let me try to explain it with an analogy or two. One aspect of my wiring, personally, is that I don't tend to, at least not most of the time, I don't tend to worry about what other people think, to a, to a fault, to be sure. So I have absolutely zero qualms with being labeled a Christian, even in the Pacific Northwest or wherever, even in, you know, today. I have zero qualms of being affiliated with Jesus. I sort of enjoy watching people go awkward and rigid when they, you know, ask at the chalk outline what I do and I tell them I'm a pastor. But there are certain contexts in which, if asked about whether or not I am, say, an evangelical, I might answer, well, that depends. What do you mean by that word? Now, I'm from Georgia originally. If I were to visit the South and I happen to be out and about in town, I don't know what's going on in the world because I don't really watch the news, and I happen to be out and about as a concluded MAGA rally emptied into the streets with all sorts of pseudo-Christian political propaganda plastered on trucker hats and poster boards, and someone tapped me and asked, hey, are you a Christian too? Well, in that case, I might say, that depends on what you mean by that word. Jesus knows that the traditional understanding of a military warrior messiah is couched in the high priest's question. Is he the messiah? Yes. Is he a military leader who will lead a violent uprising to overthrow Rome? No. He is peaceful and nonviolent, at war with Satan and death, not against flesh and blood, to use later New Testament language. So Bruner writes that if Jesus had not been subversively ambiguous in his initial reply, the misunderstanding might have remained. Christ equals warrior. And that is the worst possible definition of Jesus. Matthew's Jesus seems more discreet, even brilliant, 
Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but he is these noble realities in a way he prefers to define himself as he now begins to do. Let's keep reading Jesus' self-disclosure in verse 64. But I say to all of you, so now he's not just addressing the high priest, but the whole Sanhedrin. I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Who? Heck, yes. How is that for an answer? Are you the leader, the Messiah? Not a warrior Messiah, but seated at the right hand of God himself coming on the clouds of heaven. For the best part of this absolutely bad out reply is again in a detail easily overlooked. When Jesus finally speaks up, he does so in style to say the least. Listen up, all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man revealed in his true glory and power. Now, as we're about to see when we keep going in Matthew's gospel, from this moment on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will be spit upon, beaten, scourged, tried unjustly, tortured, and executed. We know Jesus knew this was coming. This will come as no surprise to him. He told his disciples when and where it would happen and by whom. Then Jesus deliberately went to that place, caused trouble that led to his arrest. And now Jesus says to his accusers, you will see what it means for the king to be enthroned through his suffering. But it gets better. Jesus' line about coming on the clouds of heaven is an allusion to a vision in Daniel chapter 7, a story with which his accusers would have been deeply familiar. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given the authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus invokes Daniel 7, it's not exactly an insignificant claim. We put you under oath to confess, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, well, those are your words. You're still waiting for a warrior king. But I will tell you this. In what follows from this moment on, you will see me revealed as God's chosen king who will be given all authority in heaven and on earth forever. In other words, Jesus is saying to them through this quotation, you judge me now, I will judge you in the future. Jesus is claiming power and authority that belongs to God so in verse 65, we read, The high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Oh, the irony that Jesus, the prophet, who knew by the Spirit of God that this moment with this, these people would come, who shared his foreknowledge explicitly with his disciples, and then went willingly, obediently into the awful darkness of it for these people and for the sake of creation itself. Now he is being mocked as a false prophet, disgraced with the indignity of spit and fists. I read this story at the beginning of the week. 
a familiar scene in the story. And I remember sitting at my desk and taking a deep breath and looking, as Bible teachers attempt to do, at the wide shot, the whole story. And you start to ask the big questions. When we've unpacked the history and context and language and any literary subtleties, what does this text tell us about following Jesus in our lives, in the here and now, tonight? And as I looked with the, you know, Bible teacher magnifying glass, the wide shot and the close-up, I kept finding Peter, the small detail. Peter, skulking, shameful and spider-like on the margin of the page. His shallow bravery compels him to go to Jesus but his deep cowardice keeps him at a distance, swallowed up in the shadow of Jesus' disgrace. And the more I looked at this creeping, trembling disciple, I couldn't help but imagine how tormented he must have been caught at a distance this way. There's a lot of stories uh, about Peter's personality in the gospel. He's the disciple who asks to be called out on the water by Jesus. He's the first to recognize Jesus out loud for who he truly is. He is the rock on which Jesus promised to build his church, fleshed out the way he is. It's easy to imagine ourselves in Peter's shoes. So put yourself there for a moment. Imagine that you have walked with this remarkable, enigmatic teacher for years now, and you don't always understand everything he says or does, but somehow you know, you just know that the truth is in him. And there's been trouble here and there along the road of your apprenticeship, certainly some weird moments. But mostly, you walk behind him, you listen to him, you watch him, you go with him as one day ends and another begins, and on and on for years now. And then things start to shift. There's an ominous, threatening uncertainty to your way of life and the future that you imagined for yourself and your friends and your teacher. And before you can really process these changes, Jesus is surrounded by armed men prepared to take him away and have him killed. And you're ready to fight in a moment. This is the moment that you've been waiting for. But the master won't let you. He rebukes you. And then he goes willingly to his doom. And every one of your friends is suddenly scrambling into the darkness of the night. Your community, your family, brought together by Jesus, is dispersed in a moment as Jesus is torn from the group. And you're thinking, wasn't this supposed to be the king? Weren't you all his chosen 12? How could this happen? And before you really know what you're doing, you're running away as well. You're scared and confused. And you find yourself alone, panting in the darkness, some sense needing, needling its way slowly back into your brain. And you ask yourself, what am I doing? Am I really just going to abandon the master this way? Didn't he say that this would happen? And didn't I promise that I would not leave him? So you go looking for him. You're not sure what you might do if you find him, but you know you can't just leave him alone to his fate. And then you find him at the center of a small commotion. And you hear all of a sudden the serious accusations being lobbied against him. And you realize how high the stakes really are. And every single hope that you'd nurtured for the past three years withers within you like decaying fruit. And moments ago, you brandished a sword to defend him but he won't defend himself. He won't even speak up. 
You thought you were ready to follow this Messiah into battle, to risk your life doing it, but he isn't battling at all. And as you watch, totally torn apart inside by this inner conflict, now they're all of a sudden they're spitting on your master and hitting him, slapping him and mocking him. And the once glorious teacher who held audiences in the palm of his hand and who banished evil spirits with a word won't even defend himself against a few brutes and their fists and their lies. Now imagine yourself being torn apart inside as you crouch in the shadows, miserable, paralyzed by fear and disappointment and utter agony. Many of us have crouched in that same shadow. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas argued, following at a distance is a wonderful description for the way most of us follow Jesus. We want, as Peter wanted, to see how all this will end before we commit ourselves. Unfortunately, that strategy means that we cannot help but end up sitting with the guardians of the established order. It's easy to follow Jesus into trials and tribulations when we want to do it. When Jesus graciously directs your path toward the desires of your heart, even if the path is fraught with challenges and uncertainty, most of us forge the path gratefully. That's why some of us get married or have kids or why we enter into community or embark on a risky career journey in pursuit of a dream. We know these things will present their trials, but we brave their inevitability in the name of love and hope. But then there are the haunting words Jesus will one day speak to Peter near the end of the gospel story. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This past year, and really the year unfolding before us, at least in our immediate future, as lockdown looms over everything, as the understandably clumsy distribution of vaccine kind of stumbles slowly out of the gate, and as rabid nationalists are stirred to violent frenzy in D.C. and across the country and on the internet in the name of the empire, political idolatry, or the satanic cult QAnon, as the name of Jesus is again dragged through the American mire in the process, as people in our family, our church, are hurting or enduring hardship and the, the ordinary pain of life aggravated by the shared darkness of the season, and we find ourselves often idling in the shadows, thinking when the dream was bright, when hope was burning, it was easier to follow Jesus out on the raging sea. But passion ebbs, cynicism sets in, the road of discipleship looks longer than it used to, more narrow than it once did. To walk it now seems to ask more and give less. And though our hearts promise us that life lies beyond the dying we must do, we can't seem to find the courage to get on with dying. Reading this story, scholar R.T. France observed, the reader is invited to choose between two models of how the man of God behaves under pressure. The one who escapes death, but with his spiritual reputation in tatters, and the one who will be killed only to live again in triumph. So the reader is reminded that anyone who finds their life will lose it, 
and anyone who loses their life will find it. If you aren't in that shadow at the moment, looking forward and looking back, lingering, if you're not there at the moment, you'll be there soon enough. And there's no prosperity here. There's no trick that flips the awful rock of death to reveal the diamond beneath. The beauty of Jesus is that the awful rock is the diamond. That to follow Jesus through the golden meadows of hope and joy or through the valley of the shadow of death, to follow him at all is the great cry of our hearts because we will be with him. That if we stand by him in the power and majesty of his teaching and miracles, we can stand beside him as he is mocked and abused because we will be with him either way. Following Jesus will take us to both places, into the joy and flourishing of his beautiful kingdom and into the fortifying furnace of his suffering. Following Jesus gives much and asks much. Following Jesus means walking with the Prince of Peace who also divides friends and families and households. And my prayer for us tonight, for all of us, whether we are in the sunbathed meadow of life or hobbled in its crooked shadows, is that we would follow Jesus as he leads. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves that I'm asking and that I'm inviting you to ask yourself is, where is he leading you tonight at this point in your life? Or put another way, what is the next death? Will it be the relinquishing of a plan? Will it be a season of grief? Will it be the darkness of uncertainty? Or is the next step, the next death, a terrifying move that you've been unwilling to make? Is it confession or repentance? or forgiving someone, or taking the first steps to get help? Is the next death giving something up? A dream, a relationship, a plan? All of these things can feel like dying. And trust me when I say I followed Jesus long enough to realize he will lead you into the dying rather than away from it, because it is on the other side that we find freedom and life to the fullest. If the shadow of death seems far from you at the moment, if this season finds you like it finds me, comfortable, relatively at peace, all things considered, then maybe your dying will be in giving yourself away. It will be in asking God to grow within you the compassion of Jesus that looks beyond your peaceful station to a hurting world and asks, how can I die that others might live? The dying could be big or it could be seemingly very small to us, yet monumental in the eyes of those we serve. Maybe it could be something like a meal for a grieving family in our church or a phone call when God brings a person to mind in the middle of the day. Or it could be the sharing of finances, the giving of time, the expending of energy, the little deaths that bring life to others. Now more than ever, it's been easy to see the world in all its pain. 
I think over the last few years, we've been getting a good long look at each other as a country and as the world. We've talked a lot about it here over the last few months. We can shrink back in the shadows, pull down the shutters to blind ourselves to the needs of others and the hurting in our world. Or we can follow Jesus into glory. The glory that looks like death, but in reality reveals us closer to God. Let's pray and ask God's spirit that it would be so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.